Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Lester Brown will join us to discuss clean energy. In addition, Professor DeAndre Leslie Pilecki will join us to discuss the science of NASCAR. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Rocks. And joining us is our special guest, Lester Brown from the Earth Policy Institute. This year he has come out with a sequel to his well-received book, Plan B 2.0, and the new edition is 3.0. Lester Brown, thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. Since the last uh, edition, what have been some of the interesting developments that you'd like to emphasize? Well, when we did Plan B 2.0, we were worried about ice melting, for example. Now we look at ice melting, and it's more than worrisome. It's, it's getting a bit scary. The principal sort of difference between Plan B 2.0 and Plan B 3.0 is there's a much greater sense of urgency now in terms of our response to the trends that are undermining our future. The other important indicator is that the number of failing states has increased substantially from two years ago. And we, it's now becoming clear that failing states are an early sign of a failing civilization. In your uh, latest edition, you tout wind as probably one of the main solutions for uh, lowering emissions and addressing our energy concerns. Uh, why wind? Well, wind is abundant, widely distributed, and it's rather easily harnessed. We expect that wind is going to be the centerpiece of the new energy economy, and it's at the heart of the Plan B 3.0 effort to cut carbon emissions 80% by 2020 not by 2050, which is what politicians like to talk about, but by 2020, which is what we think is needed if we're going to have a chance of stabilizing climate before it gets entirely out of hand. Wind is growing worldwide at about 30% a year, and we think it can grow even faster with right sort of government support. The most exciting thing that's happening right now with wind is, is what's happening in Texas. It was in California that the modern wind industry was born back at the beginning of the 80s. But Texas has really moved to the forefront. The governor of Texas, Rick Perry, has been working with the state legislature to put together a package to develop 23,000 megawatts of wind-generating capacity in Texas. To put that in perspective, that's about 23 good-sized coal-fired power plants. It's enough to satisfy the residential needs of half the population of Texas. So this is really a remarkable development, but it's the kind of thing that I think we're going to see more and more as public concern about climate change continues to intensify and as the evidence of ice melting and other disturbing trends continues to accumulate. You mentioned 2020 as a possible target date for lowering emissions by 80%. In contrast, you know, IPCC says we have until 2050, and range of opinions vary widely. How do you address this uncertainty? And, you know, when you talk to policymakers, they get stumped on the notion that scientists can't agree on anything. Right. Well, first of all, 
the IPCC is a huge group of scientists. There are some, at least 1,500 of the world's leading scientists. What happens when you get reports by large groups is that the conclusions tend to move toward the center of the range of opinions in the group. So you, you get sort of a least common denominator approach. The second thing is that the IPCC can only work with data that are published in scientifically refereed journals. And what that means is that there's a substantial lag time between the issuance of an IPCC report and the data that it is based on. And what has happened since the IPCC report was completed is really the story here. And a number of the scientists, the leading scientists who worked on the IPCC report, are now saying that ice melting is proceeding far faster than had been thought possible even. They're estimating that sea level will be rising two to three times as fast as the IPCC report had indicated. So certainly the winds are changing, and regardless of who becomes the next president, there's going to be vast changes. I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on what the administration should be doing in terms of the U.S. position and negotiation strategy for climate change? I think the most important we can, thing we can do is to provide an example. I, I don't have much confidence at all in international negotiations on a post-Kyoto new agreement that would take effect at the earliest in 2012. We'd have to negotiate a new agreement, and then it would have to be ratified, and those processes can take years. I think the game is going to be over long before that. And what I think we're going to see, perhaps even before the next administration, is a remarkable development in this country, where the thing that's happening in this country is there is now a nationwide movement to ban any new coal-fired power plants. And early in 2007, the Department of Energy published a study that listed 151 planned and proposed new coal-fired power plants for this country. The subtitle of the report, as I recall, was something like the resurgence in coal-fired power. And what we've seen since then is that 59 plants on that list of 151 have either been rejected for licensing by state governments or have sort of been quietly withdrawn either because they were too costly or because they could not arrange financing. And then there's another 48 or so plants that are being challenged in the courts. And most of those challenges are holding up, by the way. So that's more than two-thirds of that original list. And then there's another small third remaining where they've not yet reached the permitting stage, but when they do, they will be challenged. And within this framework of environmental groups, health groups, community groups, farm groups, we're seeing the emergence of a number of states that are trying to cut carbon emissions, like California and like New York and a number of states in the Northeast. And so these states are getting together to urge other states that are still planning coal-fired power plants to abandon the idea. So we're seeing some interesting developments, and this could culminate in a moratorium by the end of this year on building new coal-fired power plants in the United States. In fact, Congressman Henry Waxman from California has said he will introduce legislation to this effect sometime during this year. If this happens in the United States, it will send a strong signal to the rest of the world because despite the lack of leadership from Washington, this is actually happening. And, and the most important development is that Wall Street is turning its back on the coal industry. 
some of the uh, brokerage firms are recommending their clients ditch their coal stocks and replace them with, with other energy stocks. And four of the leading investment banks on Wall Street have set conditions for financing coal-fired power plants that it's unlikely anyone can meet. And these conditions take into account the uncertainty associated with future federal government actions to restrict carbon emissions. So we're seeing something happening here very fast. Within the space of the year, we've gone from a proposed list of 159 coal-fired power plants to a situation where, where very few of these are likely ever to actually be built. To replace the power that would have been powered by these coal-fired plants, you know, you mentioned wind and solar and geothermal and biomass. How do you put these other options on a level playing field? Well, one of the things that, just to give a specific example, one of the New Energy Act calls for is to phase out all the old-fashioned incandescent light bulbs, replacing them with compact fluorescents that use only a quarter as much electricity. Making that shift will save enough electricity to close 80 coal-fired power plants by itself. Then we have appliance efficiencies where there's enormous potential for improvement there. We have other possibilities in other sectors. In transportation, we have the exciting possibility of using plug-in hybrids in combination with wind energy to create an entirely new automotive fuel economy, one where most of our short-distance driving would be done with electricity and much of it coming from wind farms. And the cost of this electricity will be the equivalent of under a dollar a gallon gasoline. So we're looking at things that can happen now with existing technologies that will lead to a total restructuring of the U.S. energy economy and one that will make it far less carbon intensive than it now is. So I understand you're a proponent of carbon taxes to account for the true cost of any product or service. One of the criticisms is that it would disfavor people from the low-income sector since they would pay a high proportion of their income on energy. How do you get around that? Well, it's not that we're favoring a carbon tax per se. We're favoring a restructuring of taxes to lower income taxes and to raise taxes on, on carbon and other environmentally destructive activities. And anytime you shift tax structures, some taxpayers will gain more than others and, and some will lose in the process. So you have to adjust for that, but that's an entirely doable. In fact, the whole progressive tax system that we have is designed to deal with that. So that's not an unmanageable problem, but we do, as your question suggests, to be aware of it. So there's certain people who would argue that market mechanisms alone would allow us to address climate change and that intervention through policy is not necessary. Some people say fuel will become so much more expensive in the near future that there will be an incentive just to invest in alternatives. Probably the best answer is simply to look at the report that Sir Nicholas Stern, former chief economist at the World Bank, did on the future costs of climate change. Um, in fact, he began the study by saying that climate change is a result of a massive market failure. And by that, he meant that the market is not very good at all at incorporating the indirect costs of burning fossil fuels, for example, one of the indirect costs being climate change. So the market does a lot of things well, but there's some things it doesn't do well, and we need to be aware of those and to be prepared to compensate for it. And the way to compensate for the market's inability to incorporate the indirect costs of climate change is to restructure the tax system, lower income taxes, and raise uh, carbon tax. 
great. Uh, Mr. Brown, it's been inspirational. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And for those people who want to take a look at your new book, the website is... EarthPolicy.org. The book is online, available for browsing or for downloading, free of charge. Great. Mr. Brown, thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Good luck. All right. And you were just listening to Lester Brown discussing clean energy technology. This is the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Deandra Leslie Pilecki will join us to discuss the science of NASCAR. So stay tuned. the Grok's Science Show. Well, NASCAR is America's number one spectator sport. The fascination with racing and automobiles has never been greater, but perhaps unknown to most is the science behind the sport. Well, everything from how an engine works to how to survive a high-temperature gas fire is covered in the new book, The Physics of NASCAR, How to Make Steel Plus Gas Plus Rubber Equal Speed. The author, Professor Deandra Leslie Pilecki, is a professor of physics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and will soon be a faculty member at the University of Texas at Dallas. Professor Leslie Pilecki, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure. This is certainly a very fascinating book, especially for all the NASCAR fans out there. But actually, your research specialty, it seems, is nanomaterials. How did you actually become interested in the physics of NASCAR? Yeah, well, you know, two years ago, if you would have told me I would have written a book about NASCAR, I would have told you you were nuts. I frankly could not understand why anyone would find watching cars go in circles at all interesting. But it just so happened that I was clicking through channels, and I happened to click onto a race. Nothing out of the ordinary, but I saw some cars going around a corner. And one of the cars, its back started wiggling. Then all of a sudden, it went wham into the wall. And this made me really irritated because there was no logical reason why the car should have gone into the wall. I mean, I'm a physicist. I like to understand why things happen. And so I thought I would go look up on the web what happened, 10 minutes maybe. Two years later, here's a whole book out of it. So how did you actually go about starting to investigate this little uh, phenomenon that you saw? Well, I started off looking on the web, and I felt probably like I bet our physics students feel when they take physics courses, you get into all this jargon and lingo that doesn't make any sense. So I started watching more races, and I finally realized that, you know, there's a lot of people with PhDs working on NASCAR teams. And I contacted a couple of those people, and that sort of got me into the sport. And what did you eventually find out? What was the reason for the car wobbling? Well, one of the interesting things that I hadn't appreciated is that how air flows over a car makes a huge difference on the grip the tires have. So the tires have grip because the tires grab the track, but they also have grip because the weight of the car pushes down on the tires. And then when air is flowing over the car, that air also pushes down on the tires. So how much grip you have depends on basically how fast you're going. If another car gets behind you, it can actually mess up how the air goes over the back end of your car. And then it's like trying to make a turn on ice when the back wheels sort of rotate out from under you. And so just by another car having gotten too close, didn't even touch the first car, the first car lost its grip and ended up in the wall. 
Hmm. Aerodynamics is such a very important part of NASCAR. I believe that uh, something that's just now being appreciated in the sport. Well, you know, I think probably 10 years ago was when they really started using wind tunnels. There's a, a few purpose-built wind tunnels now which are made specifically for stock car racing. It's very rare at this point that a car goes onto the track without having been to a wind tunnel. I, I see, and so there must be quite a bit of testing that's done on even materials that's used for making these cars. <laughs> yeah, the, the teams are somewhat limited because NASCAR is, is pretty strict about what you can use. Hmm. So they try to keep the costs from skyrocketing out of control. So, for example, you know, if you really wanted a good material, you'd use like a titanium aluminum alloy. Well, th you can't use those. <laughs> so the entire car body is made of, of plain old stainless steel. Now, that's not to say the cars aren't safe. The cars are really safe. But they try to keep a lid on escalating costs. I see. What was the most surprising thing that you discovered while you were looking at all the science that goes into building NASCARs? I think that race cars are much more complicated than I expected them to be. I mean, I really thought I would go in and I'd spend a few months studying stuff and, and I'd understand it. I figured I'd be going in there and telling them things. But it turns out that every time I think I understand something, I'll, I'll run it past one of the people I met working on the book, and they'll say, well, yeah, that's mostly right, but you forgot. You know, and then there's some second order or third order effect. They're really fighting for hundreds and sometimes thousands of a second. And so you're looking at every little small effect that normally you'd say, well, it's negligible. Well, in NASCAR, those aren't negligible. Well, how much does teamwork play into it? Yeah, teamwork is getting more and more important because NASCAR is really moving more from being single-car teams to being multi-car teams. It's sort of like the way condensed matter physics has changed. We used to all work by ourselves, but now things have gotten so expensive that you can't all afford to have your own equipment, and so we share. Teams have gotten the same way in NASCAR. We saw it in the Daytona 500. The two-car pushed the 12-car to the win. Um, if they weren't teammates, it might have had quite a different outcome. Exactly what goes into building some of these engines to actually get the RPMs that they need? Yeah, the engines are fascinating because they run at a standard track anywhere from 8,500 to 9,500 RPM. And, you know, you're, look at the tachometer on your car when you go home, and it's probably running around 2,500, 3,000. So what that means is that valves are opening and closing, you know, roughly 80 times each second. So you need really strong materials so that the valves, for example, aren't breaking. Engine failures are the second most common cause for a car to go out of a race. And usually that's because there's been some kind of material failure. They're asking these engines to really work hard. Mm, so what did they do to push the limits of these things? Well, they'll do things like they'll try to get as much mass out of the piston, for example. And so the pistons are made of aluminum alloys. And you want it to go up and down really fast, so you want it to have a low inertia. So you want to try to get as much mass out as possible. Well, the problem is it gets really hot in the cylinder. And so I've seen quite a few examples of pistons where literally there's quarter or half dollar sized holes in the top of the piston because it just burned right through. Wow. Clearly this requires some serious engineering. What are the engineers like that work on these different parts? Most of the people who are involved in the sport at the master's and Ph.D. level never intended to go into motorsports. A lot of them just sort of got there by accident. The um, person that I worked with on aerodynamics, Dr. Eric Warren, who's now technical director for Michael Waltrip Racing, he was going to go work for NASA. And just on chance, he ended up getting hired by a race car team. And so most of those people hadn't planned to go into it, but now that they're in it, they really enjoy it. Almost like going to the moon. Almost like going to the moon. These guys make pretty good money. Much better than being an academic. True. Probably even better than working for the government, too, I bet. <laughs> yeah, except I'll tell you, they don't have job security. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, that's if the car crashes, what happens to these guys? 
Well, they normally bring two cars to the racetrack mm -hmm. for that very reason, is, is the drivers tend to crash a lot more cars than the people who build them would really rather have happen. <laughs> Sometimes you can repair it. You know, they can pretty much reconstitute a car if there wasn't any damage to the, the chassis, which is the, the tube frame underneath. So it really depends how badly it was damaged. But in a normal year, a team will probably make about 10 to 12 cars per team. Mm -hmm. So they expect that when two cars go out to the track that maybe one will come back. <laughs> With so many crashes, how do these drivers survive the crash? Well, there's been a lot of innovations in safety. One of the neatest things, which I have to brag about because it was done right here at the University of Nebraska, are the safer barriers, which you'll hear the drivers refer to them as soft walls. Well, I'm sorry, you'll hear the commentators call them soft walls. Any driver who has ever hit one will tell you they're not <laughs> soft. They're softer. But these are energy-absorbing walls so that when a car hits a wall, the kinetic energy of the car is actually dissipated in deforming the wall and the foam that's contained behind the wall. And so they've been able to really reduce the amount of impact that the drivers are feeling when they do hit the wall. I see. So it's more absorbent, the walls that are there. Yeah, they're much more absorbent. And, you know, it was a really an interesting problem because you had to find a way to have the driver bounce off the wall hmm. without having him bounce off and go back into traffic. So the way the walls are designed, if you look at the videos from overhead, the car comes in at an angle and then just sort of skims along the wall after it hits. Hmm. So it dissipates energy without rebounding the car back into traffic where it might get hit again. Uh, what about fires that might erupt in the car itself? Yeah, I think fire is probably the number one thing that drivers are afraid of because it means that the rescue workers can't get to them. So they have fire retardant materials. They use a material mostly called Nomex, which is it's really cool polymer. The way it works is that when it gets hot, the carbon in it forms sort of a shell outside the fiber. And carbon is a really good thermal insulator. And so that gives the driver a little extra time to get away from whatever the source of the fire is. Giving him some more time then to survive. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the problems with the kinds of gaseous fire extinguishers is that the way they work is that they remove oxygen from the air. Well, that's great, except when you have a driver in the car. So mostly the goal is get the driver out of the car as quickly as possible. But they do have fire extinguishers inside the car, both in the engine compartment, driver's compartment, and in the trunk where the fuel cell is. That's very interesting. Have you actually had a chance to uh, drive a racing car? I did. I actually got to drive a, a stock car at Texas Motor Speedway. That was one of the coolest things. If you're going to write a book, you should pick something that, you know, you really get to do <laughs> cool things when you do research for. They don't let you get up as fast as the real races. So we only got to about 150 miles an hour. But it was really neat because I do that calculation in my class. You've got a car going around a bank turn of a certain radius at a certain speed. How many Gs do you pull? And you get a number, two. Well, I've got a gut-level appreciation now for what 2Gs actually feels like from that experience. It was pretty neat. When I was actually driving, it didn't feel all that fast. But when I got out, I noticed that my hands were shaking and my knees felt sort of weak. So even though my brain didn't appreciate that we were going fast, the rest of my body definitely had it figured out. <laughs> have you uh, interacted with many of the drivers as well? And what do they have to say, I guess, about their intuitive feeling of, of driving these cars? I have gotten to talk to a number of the drivers. And, yeah, the word you use, intuitive, is, is exactly it. They'll talk about things, and they won't use the same language I would use, being you know, a professionally trained physicist, but they understand the concepts. Elliot Sadler, who's the driver whose car I followed around for three races, has this great thing where he narrates a crash at Talladega where his car barrel rolled five times and then got up on its end and turned around a couple times. And, you know, he goes through 
because I'm turning each time I each time I roll over, I'm dissipating a little bit of energy and I'm experiencing some force. If I'd stopped all at once, I would have experienced a larger force. Mm-hmm. Well, that's F equal dpdt, mm-hmm. but in normal words. So they really do understand the physics behind what's happening. Is there anything that you found that's maybe counterintuitive about driving the car that uh, one wouldn't sort of not normally expect from the normal physics? Well, I think one of the things, that you, you have an image that driving a stock car is like getting in your own car and just driving really fast. Mm-hmm. But because NASCAR mostly turns left, twice a year they go places where they turn left and right, but <laughs> mostly just left. NASCAR's chiral. Um, <laughs> the cars are set up to pull to the left. So if you want to go straight, you have to sort of turn the steering wheel to the right. And the other thing is, is the rides are really, really rough. You know, you think that a motor, a high-performance motor, should be nice and smooth, and they're not. Spending four or five hours in that car, I'm amazed they don't all emerge with headaches. Is there anything in the seat itself maybe to help absorb the uh, vibrations? Yeah, you know, actually the seats are a big issue this year because last year one of the drivers separated his shoulder in a crash. They've redesigned the car quite a bit to try to make the car safer. And now what they're finding is the seat appears to be a little too stiff. So the seats are sort of like cocoons. You sit down in it, and there's rib braces that wrap around you, and there's shoulder braces and a head brace. And so if you're claustrophobic, being a race car driver is a really bad profession to go into. (laughs) But what they're realizing now is that they need to think a little more about putting some give in the seats so that when the drivers hit, they don't experience sharp forces. So I guess you did mention that uh, these cars are usually going left. Does that introduce any specific items in terms of designing the cars itself? Well, it used to. NASCAR has a brand new car this year. They, they used to be called the car of tomorrow, but now it's the car of today. Mm-hmm. And before the car of tomorrow, the teams could make the cars, the bodies, basically not any shape they wanted, but within some guidelines. And so if you looked at one of the old cars from the top, it actually looked like a kidney bean. The front part of the car swerved to the left and so did the rear. Gary Nelson, who's one of the people who works in the NASCAR R&D Center, had made this comment that it looked like the car had been in an accident before it even went on the track. They were just so twisted. And that helped it turn. But with the new car, again, in an an effort to try to keep the costs down, NASCAR has more rigidly constrained the body. And so the teams have lost the ability to affect the aerodynamics of their car by changing the body. They're not real happy about that at the moment. Uh So how are they trying to compensate? Well, they added two pieces. Um, Used to be that you got most of your front downforce, your front grip, from the nose and the hood of the car. Mm -hmm. And what they've did is they added what's called a splitter. And it's just a horizontal shelf. It's at the bottom of the front of the car. And it splits the air. Some goes over, some goes under. That provides front downforce. Then they added a wing, much like you'd see on Indy cars, in the back of the car. And that provides the rear downforce. And those two pieces you can adjust once you get to the track. With the body, once it was on, it was on. Couldn't do much with it. So the idea is that the, the teams could pack up the cars they used in Daytona and drive them out to California, which is where they're racing this coming weekend. I see, and then make the adjustments there. And make adjustments there. Normally what they would do is have a Daytona car and then have a California car, two totally separate cars. Mm. And they'd really gotten to the point where they were customized each car for each race, and that was getting really expensive. Right. So the car of tomorrow is supposed to save money. The owners are still a little skeptical about that. We'll see how this year goes. Right. You're also much involved in trying to teach science and physics into a general audience. How has the physics of NASCAR helped that? Well, you know, there's a lot of people who don't think of themselves as interested in science. 
but they love NASCAR. The, the number you hear about NASCAR is 75 million fans. Mm. That's a lot more than string theory, I'm pretty sure. And so I think there are people who would pick up a book on NASCAR who wouldn't pick up a book on science. So the people who are involved in NASCAR want to understand why their drivers are winning or losing. And NASCAR is really unnatural because winning or losing depends so heavily on science and its levels. You can understand a lot of this on a very basic level. If you want to really understand the subtleties, it starts getting a lot more complicated. But my book is designed to appeal to the folks who really don't have a lot of scientific background. Well, it is certainly a very fascinating book. And again, it's called The Physics of NASCAR, How to Make Steel Plus Gas Plus Rubber Equal Speed. We're ready to play the game. It is called the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic checkered flag or a pit stop. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they've got the checkered flag or they need to make a pit stop. Dr. Leslie Palecki, are you ready to play the game? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Person number one, checkered flag or pit stop, Dr. Phil. Oh, gosh, pit stop. <laughs> Anyone who gets involved with Britney Spears, he doesn't have to? Ah, that's a very good reason. Number two, uh, Talladega Night star, Will Ferrell. Um, yeah, that's a pit stop for me, but just because I don't like Will Ferrell all that much. <laughs> uh, all right, well, number three, then, uh, racing great Dale Earnhardt. Oh, that's a checkered flag. He was really the person who brought the sport to um, the attention of a lot of people. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number four, the famed physicist Albert Einstein. Oh, you haven't even have to ask that. Check your flag. <laughs> All right. Uh, number five, finally, the president of the United States, George Bush. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to be a pit stop on that one, <laughs> even though I know he's a NASCAR fan. Oh, well, if the science budget would have been better this year, <laughs> he would have gotten a checkered flag. Uh, we can only hope for next year. Uh, we sure do. All right. Well, Professor uh, Leslie Plecky, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about the book, which is The Physics of NASCAR, How to Make Steel Plus Gas Plus Rubber Equals Speed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Rocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Wing. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.